If I think where we've come from, and I think where we find ourselves, I wake up every morning feeling, whoa, there's so much to do, and there's so much to actually change, and the potential for changing society for the better is greater than it's ever been. Um, there's so many things going for us. So if I have to give advice to anybody, it's just be in the system. Let the system decide what your role is. Open yourself for all the opportunities and possibilities that will come your way. Be open, be ready, be humble, go with what will become clear to you. Welcome. I'm Dr. Maria Christodoulou, and this is the Awakening Doctor podcast, a space where we discover the personal stories of those who work in the medical and health professions. Join me as I explore the hopes, the fears, the aspirations, and the real-life challenges of those who carry the title, responsibility, and privilege of being a doctor. My guest is Dr. Keith Clutie, head of the Western Cape Government Department of Health in South Africa. I've had the privilege of working with Keith as his leadership coach over the last eight years, and I've come to know him as an authentic and visionary leader, a man with a courageous heart, indomitable spirit, and deep commitment to social justice. Also in the room with us is Amy Kay, writer and narrative coach, and the producer and editor of the Awakening Doctor podcast. Keith, I know that most people know you as the calm and reassuring presence that steered the province through the pandemic. And I'm hoping that today we can talk a little bit more about the man behind the public persona and the leadership story. I probably would think it would be good to start where I'm at. It happens to be that I'm in a place now exactly two years since the worst part of my job in the last 30 years. And that was the first week of January 2021, having just come out of December 2020, which will go down probably in health department's history, at least, or the history of the Western Cape, as the darkest month in terms of people passing away from COVID Mm -hmm. in one month. In that specific month, we we lost 150 healthcare workers alone in the health department some of which were very close colleagues in that time. And I remember the first week in January 2021, because the only thing that we were focused on was whether we will run out of oxygen in Western Cape, and there will not be enough oxygen for people needing oxygen, being admitted in hospitals. And we as a collective were holding on to the prediction from Professor Andrew Bull at the time Mm -hmm. that he thinks the cases will start decreasing in that wave on the 7th of January. The 7th of January, the cases decreased and we felt a sense of relief. But I'm starting there because that for me, two years ago, exactly to where we are now, I'm in a completely different space. I think we all collectively in this province are in a different space. And a lot of where I'm at now has to do with what I've learned during that period. Really being stretched to the limit in terms of what it is that I think I was capable of. In that time, I learned I could go deeper than I thought I could go. And for me, I'm extremely grateful where I'm sitting, having this conversation with you reflecting on where I'm at at this point in time. A place of immense gratitude, a place of immense calm in terms of just really enjoying life and really enjoying being myself. You might recall that the Western Cape was the place where the cases increased the first mm-hmm. in the whole of South Africa. And it was always going to be whether our ICU capacity was enough to cope with the people requiring ICU care. Right. I think it was June 
2020, when I started getting the news that the ICUs at Grootske Tigerberg were starting to fill up. And I had to be on an interview for the first big interview with Sally Bedet on ENCA on that Friday evening. And I just got the call first before I went on there to say that the ICUs are now full. Hmm. And that was still four weeks short of what we thought would be a peak. And I remember playing in my head, I'm about to go on national TV, but the only thing that I could be in that moment, it's just be truthful. Mm -hmm. So the only thing I could say is we have significant pressure. We don't know how big it's going to be. And in that moment, something happens as I was about to talk to her. I just, it's just this incredible calm went came over me where I just said, okay, so what I actually understood in that moment is I'm about to speak to public that are very, very anxious. And I'm, I know healthcare workers are extremely anxious and over mm-hmm. at that point felt overwhelmed. The only thing that they have by looking at me is they needed somebody to say, although it's difficult, mm-hmm. They needed somebody to say, it's going to be okay. How would you say such a moment arises? Well, in hindsight, I think if I go back in my history, I do believe part of our journey together when you and I explored some of these things, I always had a sense that I wanted to be a doctor and I needed to be a doctor. Hmm. And I always had a sense that the place where I felt the calmest was when I was in emergency unit or I was dealing with an emergency. It felt similar. Right. It was what we were dreading about, but somebody needs to take charge. And in a sense, I'm drawn to the situation. And I've had many of those kind of episodes before Mm. where I'm drawn to the situation where I become calm. I deliberately say to this one, please do this. No shouting. Mm. Calm it down. I can relate to that. I remember times, particularly as a junior doctor, where I had that moment of in the midst of chaos, suddenly just everything pulling together. But I also know that often after the fact then the impact on me and my emotional well-being was often quite profound. And it took me years to realize that I needed to create space after events like that to process the impact that it had had on me. Is that true for you too? So it's interesting because uh, you asked me the question, I naturally went to the place of the darkest moment. I didn't go to this episode, which Mm -hmm. was when I needed to step in and become for everyone. In a sense, set the tone for how I came across during the whole of COVID. And in a sense, that was cumulatively from March, April, when I started, all the way till January. That's nine months ongoing, holding a space. And in a sense, nine months of holding that at that level of intensity is probably not something Mm. that I would ever want to repeat. Right. What happened in December, I also collectively remember the day as a senior management team where I opened the meeting, 15 of us and, you know, we go all this. And we know, look, this is going to be a very, very difficult December. It's heading up to this pinnacle that we don't know what it's going to be like because the first wave was lower. The second wave looks like it is quite severe. And we didn't know at the time it was the beta variant. When in that meeting collectively as 15 senior managers we all broke down Mm. it was a team's meeting but every single person Mm. broke down Mm. it was almost like a collective release valve for all of us in terms of vulnerability in terms of saying you can only carry as much up to a point we realized in that moment of vulnerability the collective strength and that we are there for one another I find myself wondering about that moment of, you know, about to go live on TV, aware that you have no idea where this is headed. You've just found out that the ICUs are full and yet you have to offer people hope. Mm. 
And that's one thing I know about you, having chatted to you many times over the years, is that hope seems to be a thread that runs through everything that you do. You, you have this amazing ability to stay optimistic, even in the midst of really dark circumstances. What enabled you to offer others hope at a time when you were feeling anxious and overwhelmed? I think that was the beauty of it. And I can really recall always finding the hope and then providing others hope, you know, if others feel disillusioned. It does become more and more difficult to continue to find a hope. Mm. And then in itself becomes a pressure that you actually cannot be seen to not have hope. Right. But whenever it became difficult to find a hope, I would draw on the strength of others to see the hope. Mm. They constantly still call me the one with rose-tinted glasses. So it's <laughs> like, so he's the one that sees something that the rest of us can't see. I can't actually search and find the place where I've given up hope. I've never mm. gotten to that place. And, and for me, that I take back all the way back to my childhood because it, it is one thing that of my father that stays with me. It doesn't matter how bad things are. You know, it will say there's always something to look out for. Right. Even if it's just that the sun will rise tomorrow morning. So I always remember him being very, very clear about, you know, our history in the country and where we are. Mm. Always saying there will come a day where things will be brighter and better. Mm. If you give up now, you will miss out on that prize. So that was always what he said to me since I was a child. Wow. He was a teacher, right? He was a teacher, yeah. Yeah. If I remember correctly, at a, a Moravian church school. Yeah. You've also shared with me once before that he sort of gave you quite a profound message about who you could be in the world and that that has carried you through some difficult times. I always remember him. He was quite an amazing man. My brother and myself found out when he passed away and we were preparing for his funeral mm -hmm. that we always heard about him being a member of the Eon group. It was a black opera group that operated from Joseph Stone in Athlone. Mm -hmm. And the Eon group in itself had so many good opera singers. Mm -hmm. And actually at one point they went to travel overseas. They toured Europe as a black opera group from Cape Town. Wow. And we always heard that he was in this thing. So we went to Joseph Stone and me and my brother spent the week going through boxes and boxes of material because they have not organized it yet for their museum exhibit. And we found the most amazing details about him, that he was actually chosen to be the main baritone hmm. for that tour. But he didn't go because he stayed because he was a teacher and was expecting his first child. And Wow. You know, so that's his history. As he was growing up with each one of uh, three other brothers, but with each one of us, he had this thing that he was extremely well read. Mm -hmm. So his big thing was libraries and books, order the reader's digest. And we would always have to do enrich your word power or something <laughs> every week that, and yes. all of that kind of stuff. Yes. And he took pride in teaching us playing chess. So, so my younger brother could play chess at the age of four and hmm. could read time when he was three. But he took pride in, in doing that specifically with each one of us. And I remember once when we were reading one of those books, and he told us, me and my younger brother, look, a lot of things will happen to you in South Africa. You are going to places where people will tell you on the basis of your skin color, on the basis of where you come from, that you cannot do what you want to do. Hmm. And he said, well, whenever somebody tells you that, just say to yourself, you can decide to be whoever you want to be. Hmm. And nobody can decide for you who or what you can or cannot be. Hmm. Somehow that stuck with me. Wherever I went and whenever I had to do exams and wherever I had to do what I needed to do in life to determine my own destiny, those words would always be with me. Nobody will decide what you can and cannot do. Decide for yourself. So that 
guided me through my career. That's amazing. And I guess this idea of destiny is something that I'm curious about. You said you've always known or you always knew you were going to be a doctor. Mm. Tell me more about that. Why, why medicine is a question I often ask yeah. myself and others. I think you call it destiny. I actually look back on my life and I think that I've had almost like guardian angels wherever, wherever I kind of found myself mm. in a place. And again, I can like remember this to like the finite detail to the day, to the time. I mean, I think I was about seven years old so and we came to visit my grandmother my mom's mother they were the ones that was displaced from district six they were placed in Alchis river from district six so you were born i was born in district, in district six. six yeah and i think they were displaced when i was two years old so i, I do have one or two recollections of oh. memories being on steps falling down steps and so we went my father was then this teacher at uh, moravian primary school so we were in picketburg but our holidays were always to come to Elsie's River to come to my grandmother and grandfather to spend the June holidays with them. So I remember when I was seven years old and staying with them. And my cousin, who is my mom's elder sister's son, he retired as Professor William Pick. He was the he was the president of the MRC. He was the head of community health. But he was a GP in Elsie's River at the time. And I remember as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old coming to visit and then going with Uncle Willie. And so I went with him to his practice and I saw him seeing his patients and what he did. That was just it. When I was exposed to that, I was going to become a doctor. Mm. And I've never actually had any other idea other than that. And he was oh. quite a remarkable GP as well, because he's one of those people that were truly community oriented person. He mm. grew up in Elsie's River, grew up partially there because they were displaced mm. there. Yeah, as, as a son of Elsie's River. And I saw all of that in action and yeah. I decided that's what I wanted to do. So you would have studied medicine at the height of apartheid, really. And I recall, you know, Tigerberg Hospital, where I trained, being divided into an east wing and a west wing. East wing was for non-white patients and the west wing was for white patients. And there was a lot of disparity in what was offered to patients at that time. And I also remember that there were maybe only eight or nine colored or black students in a class of a hundred and something medical students at that time in my year. And that, you know, those students were almost invisible and in fact refused to be a part of our class photo at the end because they didn't feel they'd been acknowledged as part of the class. What was it like being a medical student in those years for you? So I enrolled to do medicine in 1983, so that was mm. my first year at UCT. So I came straight from my high school in Worcester, which is Esalen Park Senior Secondary, and, and I was Afrikaans speaking. Mm -hmm. And we applied to both Stellenbosch and UCT. I got in at both, but I chose UCT. In first year, we enrolled and I was one, I think we were six, maybe 16 mm. black students out of a class of 180. We were not really part of it and we kept to ourselves and we didn't participate in graduation and any mm. of those things. So from 83 to 88 was a very, very turbulent time, mm. you know, politically in the country. But stand out for me about that specific time is that when I arrived, from this Afrikaans speaking school and I arrived and there were 16 other colored and Indian colleagues mm. um, because the story is that the first African black graduate at UCT med school was with my brother and that was in 1991. I lived in Weinberg with my aunt. I had to travel to university. It's foreign to me. It's English speaking. And from a very, very early time in that enrollment, 
I made it very clear that this is what my father told me about. In this space, I have to determine, I have to define who I am, what I'm going to do. For me, it was just not an option not to succeed. I had a call vividly when the first set of test results came out. And, you know, the results comes out in centiles. Yes. So I think it was a chemistry test. Only you know, people that score like up to 94 would be in the first center, right? So all these guys would now stand, these very loud speaking, English speaking, white, white <laughs> southern suburb types would be standing there and talking loudly because they would now assume they know everybody that's in the first center. And there was a name that they didn't know. Who is this guy? Nobody knows who this guy is. So I walk up to the wall and I say, okay, that's my score. And I walk away because <laughs> that was defining who I I am and what I was going to do. It's quite interesting. I meet people now that were in that class that has no recollection that I was in that class. Hmm. That are now specialists at Grotskia and all of them, but not have any really recollection because wow. we didn't have that much contact. Yeah. And I think I told you when, when I qualified in 88, 1991, I went to work in Canada. Hmm. The first patient that came in when I was a locum doctor in Canada. It was for the first time in my professional career, I saw a white person walk in, sit down, and purely looked at me on the basis that I'm a doctor, not my skin color. That's the first experience I've had wow. of being valued for who I am professionally, mm. rather than who I am from a racial perspective or a box that people have put me in. So yeah, so that was my history in medical school. Yeah, wow. I remember that story. I think you shared it with me in our very first meeting ever mm -hmm. when we started coaching. And I guess over the years that I've known you, there have been a couple of such defining moments, you know, the conversations with your father, this encounter with the white patient who saw you for who you are rather than for your skin color, and themes about identity, gender, race, and relationships have been at the center of many of our conversations about leadership. How do those experiences shape who you are as a man and as a leader today? I genuinely, I guess when I look back, mm. feel somebody that has had guardian angels wherever I went. Mm. And it's just incredible the amount of people I came across that took a personal interest in me, who wanted me to be the best that I could be. And those kind of guardian angels were everywhere. And there's so many people that played that formative role mm. in the way that I could learn from them. Many of those encounters was really just, I guess, started awakening in me eventually, awakened me to this notion that I probably am meant to do or be something. Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite sure what that was. But my father just said, you can be whoever you want to be. So, right. so what is that? And therefore, all these interactions about gender, about race, about class, social class. Mm -hmm. I learned so much. And just the awareness around sexual orientation, around culture, mm. around religion, all of those aspects. I was just very fortunate. And I guess it always came from a place where my first awakening was that although because of race, I was defined as somebody that does not have the privilege that comes with race. Mm -hmm. The awakening was because I was male, because I was a doctor, mm. because I have a certain sexual orientation because I'm able-bodied, actually very quickly realized that that actually represents privilege. Right. Although I almost could have said I'm underprivileged because of race. Right. I became much more attuned and aware mm -hmm. that my interactions with people that are less privileged than me, mm -hmm. what that represents. And I think it's, it, it's becoming aware of their lived experience and understanding the world from a perspective of somebody 
that didn't operate from a place of privilege. Mm. I can just look back now and say, you know, yeah. that happened to me at exactly the right moment wow. in my development and my growth. Yeah. You know. Two things come to mind. The one is about um, a conversation I had with Dr. Dorian Aiken, a fellow coach, and she taught a module on diversity as part of the coaching course that I did. And one of the things that she said was that we tend, both as individuals and as a collective, to look at the world through the lens of our biggest wound. And that, you know, for example, in South Africa, the biggest wound is race. race. And so anything and everything that happens gets viewed through that lens and often at the cost of other dynamics that are equally problematic, you know, whether that be gender issues or sexuality or class. And you mentioned earlier listening to the white southern suburb types talk about not knowing who this name was on the, the list. What's it like to be the head of the Department of Health that supervises these doctors now and to be living in the southern suburbs yourself? That's really interesting because I think part of what I was saying to you as a young person, I was seeing life through the biggest wound, mm -hmm. which was race. In my mind, when I arrived, I was an outsider mm -hmm. within the UCT medical school of my year of intake. Right. Anybody else of color was an outsider. So I specifically and all of us still made that reference point that the culture and the prevailing culture or the prevailing context of our class was white, English speaking. So we were the other and we were on the margins mm -hmm. um, because that was what our lecturers were. That is what our class was. That is what the Tut groups were about. Mm -hmm. So we defined ourselves as different. So out of this group of 17, mm -hmm. <laughs> for the entire six years, in the tutorial groups. I was never in any group where there was a white person. We stuck together. So you uh, had that choice. You weren't we assigned. Had a choice. Okay. We, had, we had a choice and we deliberately chose to right. be in this group together. And that was a survival tactic from our side. Hmm. Because in our group, the norm then was, <laughs> so who is going to get the highest marks in our group? <laughs> because it's only colored people. So, <laughs> so right. for, us, for us, that was a normalization of who we are. Hmm. Um, and we could always look at the group where you know, there was a colored guys with other with white people and they will never get the highest marks in mm. those groups and they were the outsiders within this small group so i do believe you know using dorian's words seeing mm. my whole university career through the eyes of, of the biggest wound mm. that was our lived experience all the way up to qualifying becoming doctors and then working in the system so i'm the head of the department 30 years later mm. and since then i've done a lot of growth I've, and i've learned to accept that life is more nuanced than just that. Being the head of department for me now is I'm not the head of department as the 22-year-old that qualified. I'm head of department 30 years later with having had such rich exposure and experience across so many different groups of people that in a sense I do represent the group of medical students I was with because I actually met quite a few of them in my work environment working in day hospitals mm -hmm. and we became the best of colleagues. One of the biggest things that I did feel mm -hmm is that because I grew up in the system, I've got so many different connections with different people. Mm. And it happens to be with every single possible subgroup or culture in our organization. And I feel a connection with almost everyone. It's quite interesting as well, because I obviously got to know a lot of colleagues that studied at Stellenbosch, mm -hmm. that would work in different hospitals that I worked. And we also became very good colleagues. You mentioned 
the word awakening and you know that I call myself an awakening doctor mm. and I, I was thinking as you said it about Dr. Shafali Tsabari who talks about awakening is what happens when we become who we really are and my experience has been that and continues to be that it's a series of awakenings that happen over time mm. that allow us to reclaim more of who we are as we grow. What do you think has made it possible for you to awaken through the experiences you've had rather than to hold on to that woundedness which so many people do? I know people your age, my age, you know, we're both in our mid to late 50s now, who still hold on to that biggest wound, whatever it may be, and who've not allowed themselves to see the ways in which they may have privilege in other areas of their lives, or there may be reasons to be optimistic about life. What do you think made it possible for you to grow? I literally look back and I think, if you really look at my trajectory and my experience, my exposure, I literally feel that I'm some, I actually am the one with the golden spoon, you know, so Mm -hmm. I was very, very fortunate in what happened to me. And it it happened to be, I guess, coincidental, but it was also with the connections and people I knew. So my first big exposure, and that was, you know, literally in 1991, three years after I qualified. Very few other people have that. And when I came back, I always recall this conversation because when I came back, I started working in the community health centers, their hospitals. But in 1994, I was a school doctor and I was working at the school clinic and I was sitting with a school psychologist and saying to her, it took me to qualify to go work in Canada, to come back and work in South Africa, in Canada to realize what I'm worth as a medical practitioner. That healed my wound. She was a white um, school psychologist working with me in Mrs. Plains. She said to me, that is so tragic. So I said to her, no, but look, I'm saying it to you from a place of, I feel at ease with it. I'm saying to you that I was scarred as a young person growing up in this country, that I had to go overseas Mm. and I realized I was scarred. So I've got insight into what systematic racism does to your self-worth. And the only thing I could hope for is if I have a child, that my child will not go through the same scarring. And that I can break with my child the intergenerational impact of racial discrimination. Then in 94, because we had the election, there was an opportunity for me and my wife, for Estelle, to go to spend six months in New York. Again, through a connection, Estelle got a job to go work on Wall Street as part of the ex- exchange between President Mandela and David Dinkins of New York at the time. Mm-hmm. So black professionals could go, and she happened to be one that was chosen. So I tagged along as a doctor so I could... <laughs> Again, through through William Pick and their connections and Marion Jacobs that they've made with uh, Jack Geiger, who was at City University of New York, it was just one phone call and a connection. Can you host me? And I'll ask my job whether I can keep my job unpaid. And I remember that level of the night, there was a fax machine in our room. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a six-month program fax to me. Wow. And he happened to be a professor emeritus. He also won a Nobel Prize for Medicine for, for actually for the first community health center in the U.S. Wow. I remember going to Jack Geiger's office when I was 27 years old. He always tell the story. He says, I waited for Dr. Clutie is coming and he's arranged this and he's got an office for me. <laughs> so he says, here these two youngsters walk in with T-shirts and shorts from South Africa and they look like children. <laughs> <laughs> that first experience in Canada repeated, accentuated at multiple intersections in my life. Right. In the bigger scheme of things, I was operating from a place of privilege. Not many had that privilege. Mm. That opened my eyes. Right. 
to say, actually, if I think of myself as a privileged person, then I start appreciating the non-privileged others have. And I guess that can only happen, one, through relationships, which you've spoken about, two, through context. So, you know, finding yourself in a different context where that wound is not the biggest collective wound Mm -hmm. and experiencing yourself differently in that context gives you a different Mm -hmm. taste of who you can be. And then maybe most importantly, having an experience of oppression that allows you to view privilege through a different lens. Mm -hmm. Because I've encountered people who find themselves in the privileged group in almost every domain of their life Mm -hmm. and find it really hard to understand what it might be like for somebody on the other side of that dynamic. So that for me was one of the biggest lessons early on. Mm. And that is why I think when you and I had our conversation, why social justice becomes such an important thing for me. Mm. Anybody struggles with the the concept of social justice, it's difficult for me because that's a fundamental part of of my, my upbringing. So what does social justice mean for you? The easiest way is to explain it from a place of emotion. We were living on the school premises of a primary school in the Hexaver Valley after Picketburg. So my father became a teacher there. So we were the only people living together with the principal on the school premises. People that was in my class in grade one. They all came from the farms. I remember probably 60% of them mm-hmm. by name. And I never felt there was anything different between me and them. They were bright. They were intelligent. They could be whoever they want to be. Of that entire class of, I think we were about 35, one made it to grade seven. When I got to grade seven, I went into Islam Park. And one guy from my grade one class came to Islam Park. <laughs> and he lasted three months. Oh. And he's back on the farm. And every single one of them are farm workers, fell into alcohol, mm. cheap labor, and being mistreated by the farm worker. Now, if you talk about social justice to me, That is my lived experience as a 13-year-old. What I felt like when that single guy disappeared after three months at high school. I feel it's so unjust that 35 other children, Mm. not because of their doing, had no chance in life. Did you ever feel that as a burden, as a responsibility? I just felt extremely sad. So I like felt, oh, could have reached out to him, you know, at least he would have gone with me. So it's a bit of kind of 13-year-old guilt, but what was I going to do with 13-year-old guilt? What do you tell yourself at 13 about why you are the one that gets to have this opportunity? When I was four or five years old, my father was telling me to enrich your word power, do read the judges, mm. read the book. The others didn't have that. Yeah. My father and my mother showed enough interest. They weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but they invested enough to make sure that what people call now social protective factors. Mm-hmm. Um, We've also had a conversation about a time in your life where you had to make a choice to either align with your peers in the struggle or to prioritize your education. When I was called upon to stand in solidarity against social injustices, because that was what we stood for when mm-hmm. we were all expelled at UCT for marching. And my overwhelming reason why I, in a sense, caved mm-hmm. in terms of the solidarity with my colleagues, it is what my mom and my dad went through when my elder brother was arrested at UWC and he disappeared for six weeks. In that context of that, I took a decision that I would rather break ranks with a consolidated movement of standing on a principle and take the risk that comes with it. I would rather in that moment say that for me the right thing to do is to look after my education even if it's seen that i'm a traitor or i'm standing back or whatever in my adult life 
have reconciled that decision. And maybe just to clarify for those who are listening who haven't heard the full story, so there was a, an expectation, I guess, that you would be part of a protest march. Do you want to say more about yes. what that was about? So, so there was a protest and we were all suspended because we all protested. It mm. was in, at UCT, we went to the Bremer building, so we were all suspended and then we were told at a mass gathering that we could all individually be reinstated mm -hmm. if we come forward mm -hmm. and say that it wasn't our intention and we signed some kind of apology letter and then we will be reinstated. Mm -hmm. But it basically was designed to break ranks of the group. At the first of those, we all decided not to take on that offer of mm. being reinstated. And at the second attempt, me and two other guys then said, okay, well, we are going to go and be reinstated. Mm. And two days later, all the charges were dropped against everybody. But that was the decision that I took. Yeah. And I know it's weighed heavily on you for a long time. Yeah. Is there anything else you feel is important for us to talk about? The term that you used, which is awakening. Mm. And, and in a sense, my journey in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. I would like to share a little bit about that mm. because that was quite instrumental in what I was able to do during COVID mm. and it's instrumental of what it is that I'm able to do what, I, right. what I'm facing now. Yeah. I would say this is the point where I started doing things intentionally and started saying I'm consciously making this decision. It was very profound in that, in that process, was understanding the, what that journey is of finding the real me. I never put limits on what I potentially could go for. But trying to figure out, but what is it that you're supposed to be? And when you say what you're supposed to be, for me, again, we come back to this idea that there's some kind of destiny yeah. that's predetermined. And, and that was important for me. The journey that I started with you was on the back of applying to become the head of department mm. and not being successful I in the job. I remember. And I guess the first learning for me was I did not get a job that I applied for. That that was the best thing that should have happened or mm. could have happened to me at the time. <laughs> Because what I was supposed to be was not a title, it was something else. Mm. And therefore, getting a title was not what I needed to define who it is that I'm supposed to be. Because what I learned out of starting a journey of coaching on the back of not getting a job was actually, but who are you, who are you supposed to be, and on what basis mm. are you deciding? Who are you without that title, I guess. And, and the first thing I learned in that journey with you is I'm not defined by the title. It's more important to understand who it is that I'm as, as a person mm. rather than the title. I'm meant to be something else. And what is that? So then my journey was actually, what is all of the things that I've just spoken about and my whole life journey been about? It's about finding meaning for who I am. It's making a connection where I came from, what I stand for, and I started nurturing who I am more. Mm. And I embraced who I am fully. I became better at whatever title I hold. Right. And I became better at being a husband, a father, a friend. So for me, that was probably one of the biggest defining moments. Mm. And when I stepped into that position as the head of department, it was more important for me to step into the position as truly me, to hold the position in a more authentic and a better way of better benefit to everybody else and for myself and the system. So I'm in that mode now that whatever I do, whatever position I hold, it's only a temporary thing. I'm given the privilege of playing a role mm. to hold something right. for the greater good. So you've spoken a lot about being who you are, being who you're supposed to be. If I were to ask you, who are you, Keith, what would you say? 
I am a son of the Western Cape. I'm somebody who is supposed to contribute to making the world a better place. And I am just the person who goes about it in the best way that he can. What advice would you have for a young colleague starting out in their career now, wanting to make a difference in the world, interested in the health professions? Looking back, what, what advice have you been given that was perhaps really helpful on your journey? One of the most telling pieces of advice I got was from Jack Geiger, actually, in, in New York. And he said it to me in this way. It's 1994. You are here in New York. Once in your lifetime, something happens in your country where you are. The next 10 years in South Africa's history is the most important years. It comes around once in a generation. If I have to advise you, be there, be part of it. Don't think about studying overseas. Be part of your history of your country. Embed yourself in it and let it determine what your role is. Mm. Let your role become clear mm. when you're there. If I think where we've come from and I think where we find ourselves, I wake up every morning feeling, whoa, there's so much to do and there's so much to actually change and the potential for changing society for the better is greater than it's ever been. There's so many things going for us. So if I have to give advice to anybody, it's just be in the system. Let the system decide what your role is. Open yourself for all the opportunities and possibilities that will come your way. Be open, be ready, be humble, go with what will become clear to you. And when called upon, step up, own it, because the moment will present itself. So what do you believe is emerging both for you personally right now and perhaps even for the department? Where do you see the next few years taking you? If I put on my rose-tinted glasses, <laughs> I've just had the greatest privilege of having coffee with every single member of our senior management team. The overwhelming thing is a sense that our department and in a sense the healthcare system in the Western Cape is in a very good place. Mm. And it's in a good place from two perspectives. The one is many people that have gone before us have really given so much of themselves to enable us that's around now to take the benefit of it. Mm. Behind you is a clean audit award for four consecutive years. Brilliant. And that is the hard work of people that gone before us. We are in a growing organization, a learning organization, an improving organization. Mm. And because our organization is on the up, the potential to take that up to the next level and the level after that is tremendous. There's very few institutions, I would guess, in, in our country that has that privilege. It should be a norm, but because of the context of the country, it is currently a privilege. We are attracting the best talent from across the country. And people are joining our department because they want to be part of something that works. Mm. So with all of that, there's a big responsibility on us to hold it. If I think of 30 years ago, I couldn't see three generations of people taking our organization to the next level. Where I'm sitting now, I can see at least two or three generations of people with real capability and the skill set and the value set and the orientation. So that's what I can see. Mm. I can see the people that I meet with can see the same. I've got this real great optimism and hope for the future. If you are around, be part of it. Be that next generation. Really take the healthcare system in this part of the world into a different place. In generations to come, there's yeah. going to be something quite unique happening here if we invest and continue to work on that. What do you think sets the Western Cape Department apart? It's a culmination of things that placed us in a very good position in 1994 mm -hmm. in the Western Cape. It's quite unique that 
this Cape Metropole, and in the history of South Africa, people can go back and track. And it's unique that you have the level of skill, capability, and things that you have within the Western Cape. So we came from a position of privilege in terms of the people we have, the institutions we have, the capabilities we have. And in a sense, if you mix that up with the population size is not that big, what it is we're facing and how it is we can possibly do what we need to do, the factors are in our favor, irrespective of global climate change and all the other things. We have four universities and we have so many things going for us. The first thing is, and we must never ever take that for granted. The second part is we've been able to build serially and continually on basic capabilities. This province, the health department here, was probably the only one that didn't have wholesale changes in 94, maintained the capability of the apartheid era. So there wasn't a discarding of the old to bring in with a vacuum for the new. There was a continuation of the old, but a molding of the old into the new with new capabilities drawn in. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is we've been very fortunate that through that capability that we've had very, very good leadership again sequentially Hmm. to build on that. Sometimes people see the system, but they don't realize the systematic investment in the development of the capabilities that underlies the system. I'm saying that to you now because I know that the schools of public health have actually done a review and those were mainly the findings that they've had. Interesting. Is there anything you'd like to ask, Amy? I think I'm just processing everything still. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because when I sat down and you spoke about that moment of being calm and everything, you just seem like somebody who's very present to your life and to everything. And I think that's why you can vividly remember defining moments in your life. You take this in and there's a part of you that just goes, remember this, remember this. I'm also that kind of person who, when you don't know why at the moment, but there's just this voice that goes, remember this moment, this will be mm. important. And then years later you go, oh, now I get it. It's like a familiar feeling. <laughs> being in your presence. I feel like I know you. And then now that you've told your story, mm. there are a lot of places in your life that you've lived that are connected to my family. Mm. And it's really strange. And all mm. the medicines you mentioned, like where my family grew up, mm. the Joseph Stone, Worcester, mm. all of those things. And it's like, okay, now I understand. Mm. As it, there is just that familiarity because mm. we've walked in similar parts, or my family's walked in similar parts. The minute I sat down, I went like, I think I know you. <laughs> and not, not, not in an exactly. actual way, but I, there's just a knowing, there's an understanding, mm. yeah. which I think is quite miraculous and quite beautiful in the work that you do. Mm. Because just having that sense of knowing and having that sense of peace is very important, mm. especially with helping people. That's that's such a wonderful observation, Amy, and thank you for that. Because when I was on Cape Talk and Mm. I was interviewed by Lester Kivitz, and he asked me this question, and there's so many people that said exactly what you've just said, Mm. that there was something familiar about me. And and it's because I, probably if I make sense of it, I loved and appreciated each one of those moments. And, you know, one of the themes that I introduced when I did a state of the department address, Maria knows how important that was for me. It was such a defining moment. And I, t- I still try to make sense of why I became so emotional. But the theme that I draw there was that all of us have got a life story. Many of us share a similar life story. Mm-hmm. And when you come across somebody that actually points that out in terms of, of pausing, it in a sense resonates with other people's life stories. So thank you for that. I just think the whole power of what I try to do with that is my sense, Amy, myself, my sense, it's my sense making it, is that somehow my story was supposed to be the way it is. Mm. 
and somehow my storyline is supposed to cross other people's stories mm-hmm. lines. And the fabric of our society, and this is part of where my optimism comes from, is through pain, through lived experiences. People have built a resilience here that I don't think is quite the same elsewhere. So whatever life throws at us, our shared humanity and our shared lived experience makes us stronger. We actually have more power than we think to write our own story. So that's my kind of philosophy. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's beautiful. I've known you a lot longer, so for me, the resonance with the story, and you don't know my whole story, but there's many mm-hmm. key moments, especially career-wise, exactly. and your early experiences of medical school, which ironically, for very different reasons. I was one of four Greek students oh, at wow. Stellenbosch University when there were 14,000 students. Wow. And in my first week, people would run up to me and go, is jy Grieks? Kan jy Grieks praat? <laughs> and you're like, I was the oddity, and I always felt different, and I always felt like I didn't belong, but for very different reasons for you. So there are many points at which your story intersects with mine for very different reasons to exactly. Amy's, I think. And it's beautiful, that, that shared resonance. And just one other story. So I was doing this thing at District 6 because it, I was born at Peninsula Maternity Hospital. So when I was appointed the HOD, Minister Bombo and Beth took me to Peninsula Maternity, which is now District 6 CHC. Mm-hmm. So they made my announcement that I became the HOD. This is the place where I was born. Gosh. And Ronit Oaken was a family physician there. And when I then told my story of this is where my family house was, and she said to me, I grew up there because my grandfather owned half the buildings in that street. That's her connection with Mm -hmm. District 6. That's the amazing part, is that we can come in with woundedness Mm-hmm. which I came in as a young student. The woundedness blinds us to the human stories of the other. Mm. And it's the biggest barrier of truly having empathy and understanding where somebody else comes. If we get out of this polarity of I'm right or you're wrong, and we get into the non-binary, that's when you open yourself to perspectives. Mm. So the gender activist in me mm. was struck by, you were born at the Peninsula Maternity Hospital, mm. And you mentioned your mom. And I know in the interview with Lester Kivitz, you spoke about how you got your sense of calm from her. From my mom, yes. And then all these many years later, you become HOD and it's announced in that hospital by a female MEC, Minister mm-hmm. Bombo. Mm-hmm. So maybe you want to say something about your mom. Let's honor her part in all of this. Yeah, so whew, the reason why I don't want to go there, because whenever I mention my mom, I want to cry. Mm-hmm. So my vulnerability mm-hmm. comes from there. My humanity is my mom. The biggest gift she she left me was always to be in touch and be compassionate. And whatever you do, you are interconnected with the well-being of others. A colleague of mine, when I was working in Mitchell's Plane, I think he sums it up the best. So this colleague was a, like a world-weary guy, an older guy. It's the busiest community health center in, in the province. And we're a big personnel. So every Friday afternoon, I go to the town center to go buy some ingredients. And then Friday afternoons, he would make an his gas pot, a poiki for all the doctors working in Mitchell's Plant. That was our custom. So this colleague, so we used to go to his house quite often. He was another very important guardian angel. And he always talked to me about the importance of who we are, what is our bigger purpose in life. Just before my mom died, he met my mom. I always remember this guy saying to me, I've always heard you talk about your mom, but I've just met her. There's very few people in life that I meet that I get a sense that they are angels. Your mom is an angel. He said it was about the purity of her intent in her presence. It is about that she, when he explained that to me, it put so many different things in my own head together. And I've not shared that with you because it's probably been the most defining part of my life. In 96, I went overseas. Before I went, she was diagnosed with a meningioma, but she had Parkinson's. 
So the manifestation of a meningioma cancer in the brain did not actually stand out. And I still remember one of my colleagues that I hold very dear at Grotske. He's a neurosurgeon there. And I was a student with him. So he did the operation mm-hmm. on my mom. And before I went overseas, he said, look, they must do the operation. And the system is quite weak and her recovery will not be guaranteed. So I had the privilege of taking my mom in before operation. So I sat with her from 8.30 till 5 o'clock in the morning. And her saying, saying that she doesn't know whether she's going to survive the operation. From 8.30 to 5 o'clock, she told me her entire life story. Wow. And she told me the most incredible things. How she, from when I was two years old, could see that I'm going to be successful. She's trying to explain to me in her own words why I needed less than my brothers. Mm-hmm. She said, you've got four kids. I look at all four. I knew as a mother which child needs what investment from me, and it's not equal. When you got married to Estelle, I knew you would marry somebody like Estelle. It's almost like my mom had no doubt that if she could see me now, this is what, who I will be. The state of the province, that was so important to me because it was about my mom. What is it about that story that makes you emotional? When I left there, she looked at me and she was just completely at peace. She told me things that she's been carrying with her since, as a small child, that she could tell me all the things about her siblings. She was extremely bright. She had to give all of that up to go work in a clothing factory so that her brother can go to university, so that he can become a barrister, so he can go live in England and not come back for his mother's funeral. So all of that stuff, but she never had any animosity towards him, only compassion. So William Pick ironically tell me he became a doctor because of the compassion that he sees in my mom. It is the deepest part of what defines me that I hold dear with her. Thank you for sharing that, Keith. It means mm-hmm. a lot. And I know you've shared lots of things with me over the years. And we have touched on the story in mm-hmm. the past. But for me, it just highlights once again, not only your vulnerability, but also your courage. And the thing I've most valued about our conversations is your authenticity. And the two themes that are consistent in my coaching work is how people navigate transitions and the opportunity to use those transitions to awaken. And I think that the one thing I really admire about you is the willingness to dig deeper within yourself and to unearth the stories and the commitment to growing and the commitment to developing yourself, but also develop others. Mm. When you talk about your mom, I feel like that thread comes through the generations and your father's influence. And it's such a powerful, I guess, metaphor for how we influence those we come in contact with. Yeah, I'm grateful that you keep returning for the coaching journey to continue. (laughs) And I guess selfishly, I want to say, you know, perhaps you want to say something to others who not sure what coaching is, not sure whether they need a coach. What has been the benefit for you? What would you say to someone who was thinking of maybe coming for coaching? Thanks for that, Maria. Part of my sense-making and meaning-making journey is because in my journey, I've had so many people that look out for me and guided me when I needed guidance. So I make a clear distinction for myself between mentoring people Mm -hmm. and coaching people. And we know also that some people, because of past trauma and hurt, also needs counseling. And and people shouldn't confuse the three. Mm -hmm. In my progression of who I am is also to guide and invest in others so that others become the best that they can be. And some have actually said to me, because I've done coaching with you, that I've gone a little bit from mentoring into coaching as well because Mm -hmm. I do my mentoring based on the need of the person. But if I can give advice to anybody, I liken the coaching journey to one of you can stumble around in the dark, you might find the light switch, 
by chance and then see the light. The coaching journey is about having the right light switches at the right time and a much more meaningful journey for yourself. And that's what I've gained from it. Coaches with the, the right skill set and the right match can really, really unlock things that will take years in people in terms of their own progress and their own journey. Well, I guess, you know, my underlying philosophy is that we grow in and through relationship. Mm. And this idea that we don't need other people in order to succeed is the legacy of a patriarchal culture. And that mm -hmm. actually our intradependence is what defines us as human beings yeah. and being able to acknowledge the influence we can have on each other. And the fact that in the right kinds of relationships and coaching for me is one of those one contexts, of we are able to grow in ways that we can't do on our own. The one thing I didn't tell you about my mom mm. is she was a very shy person, but she went out of her way to build relationships and nurture relationships, even though it was difficult. So one of the biggest things that she modeled to me is we need people. You are interconnected. You cannot do things by yourself. My father was the outgoing one. He mm -hmm. could make relationships with everybody. Well, I clearly see that legacy in you because that's a theme of our conversations a lot. Mm. Shall we name your parents just as yes. a way of honoring them? So my mom, Rosetta Moses, as she was known as Rose. My father is Marcus Leonard Kluter, and he became known as Marcus. And because of his background in singing, at any wedding, any do, anything, <laughs> you can just turn and Merckx will sing. You know, wow. So he brings his big baritone voice and <laughs> light up a room. And maybe then also just as a way of acknowledging the generations that are still to come. You have a son, Adam, who is 20. He's 23 years old. Now. Yeah, so Adam is yeah, he's quite a remarkable young man. He reminds us, me and Estelle, he benefits from the social protective factors that we built around him in our family unit. And as caring parents and concerned parents, mm -hmm. loving parents, we're always there for him. So he's mature way beyond his years. I know he's quite an important confidant for many mm -hmm. of his friends and the connections that he's also intentionally building. Yeah. Beautiful. And lastly, as a way of honoring the woman that stands by your side, I know you always speak very mm -hmm. highly of Estelle. If Estelle were here right now, what would you want her to know about the influence she's had on your life? And what would she say if I asked her, what is it about you that maybe few people know that we would be surprised to know. Estelle and I went to a wedding ceremony of a younger couple and something the priest said resonated with both of us. He said, you are individuals in your own right and when you become married, you must understand the ability to continue to grow as individuals, but through one another. I have grown as a person because of Estelle. I believe and I know that she has grown as a person because of me. And both of us are better versions of ourselves because of one another. So she is an extremely strong and centered person. Very, very clear and authentic. I've benefited from her strength. I know the calm and all of those I can hold, but the strength, a lot of that I get from Estelle. And she's just been absolutely phenomenal in what she's done with her own life, how I could benefit on the back of what she's done in terms of my own growth. A wonderful person. What I would think she would say about me is, and she said it many times over the years, she appreciates my authenticity. She appreciates that I can be who I am and I'm comfortable with who I am, that I don't have to be defined by opinions from outside. So she would probably say that most people would not know about me is I'm her biggest supporter, I'm her biggest fan. And whatever she sets her mind to, I will support her to do it. And I love her dearly. Beautiful. Thank you, Keith. Mm. 
Anything else either of you would like to add before we close? I mean, I'm so aware there's millions of things we could talk about, but uh, we may have to just hit the pause button on it for today. I'm just grateful. This was just so such a lovely way to start off the year. I just feel like yeah. all the soul food, it's just such yeah. a cool conversation and such a wonderful experience to spend time with you and to hear a little bit of your life story. And thank mm. you so much for giving us your time. It was, yeah. it was amazing. It really, really filled me up in ways you have no idea. So thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, that Kate. means a lot. Thank you. I'm Dr. Maria Christodoulou, and you've been listening to the Awakening Doctor podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends, follow Awakening Doctor on Instagram, Facebook, and Spotify, and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and give us a good review. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>